We're opening the scriptures to the New Testament book of James. James chapter 2, reading verses 14 through 25. The word of God from James 2, beginning with verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things that they need for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, for he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Whereas the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Believing like demons. You may believe many truths about God, and yet go to hell. You can believe that there is one God, and go to hell. You can believe the Bible is the word of God and go to hell. You can believe Jesus is the son of God and go to hell. You can believe Jesus did miracles and go to hell. You can believe Jesus died on the cross for sinners and go to hell. You can believe Jesus rose from the dead and go to hell. You can believe Jesus is coming again and go to hell. You can believe hell is real and go to hell. You can believe heaven is real and go to hell, you can believe hell is real, and end up going there. How do we know someone can believe all these things and still go to hell? Because Satan and his demons believed, and they belong in hell. James 2 verse 19 says, You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. If believing certain facts about God doesn't save demons, it won't save you either. At the time Jesus spoke these words, there were many different beliefs floating around. Some of them pretty wild. Many common folks believe in all sorts of strange gods and goddesses. 
While some intellectuals believed in no God at all, some people who believed in the one true God saw the big contrast between their own belief and the beliefs of those around them. They knew that they were right about God, and some began thinking that being right about God made them right with God. They thought that heaven was guaranteed to anyone who held the correct ideas about God. Today, still, some people think this way. God uses James to bust that bubble. Your beliefs may be more accurate than some of your neighbors who believe, but if your faith is nothing more than the faith of demons, it's not a living faith. It's not a saving faith. Does this mean that it is unimportant to have accurate beliefs? No, it is very important. If you don't believe in one true God, if you believe in many gods or no gods at all, you will be lost and go to hell. To reject belief in the true God, especially if you've had the opportunity to hear the Bible's message, is an awful horror which results in damnation. But although it's necessary to believe in God, that's not sufficient. There has to be something more. Think of accurate belief as the bones of a skeleton. If we say that something isn't necessarily alive and healthy just because the skeleton is there, we're not saying that the bones and skeleton of structure are bad. It's good to have a skeleton but it's not good enough. Every living human has a skeleton, but not every skeleton is a living human. So too, everyone with saving faith has some accurate beliefs about God, but not everyone with accurate beliefs about God has saving faith. Demons have many accurate beliefs. They are well-informed. When Jesus began his ministry, the demons knew him as the Son of God before the people knew it. Once, when Jesus was teaching, recorded in Luke 4, 34, a demon-possessed man shrieked, Ha! What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God! Another time, recorded in Luke 8, 28, Jesus was near the graveyard when a man possessed by many demons came out shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? I beg you, don't torture me! Jesus drove the demons and rescued the victims. Those events show Jesus' power over demons, to defeat demons, but they also point To notice what is for our discussion is that demons believe in Jesus' deity and authority. They also believe that Jesus has power to send them to hell, and they don't want to go there. So if you believe God is real, even if you believe some basic facts about Jesus, even if you don't want to go to hell, there is nothing in your faith to distinguish it from the faith of demons. If that's the extent of your belief, 
you have no sound reason to think that you won't end up in what Jesus describes in Matthew 25, 41 as the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Any belief or feeling you have, which demons also have, cannot be taken as a sure sign of God's grace in your life. Indeed, there is a sense in which it is worse to have accurate beliefs without really trusting and loving God than it is to know little or nothing about the truth. The more facts you know about God without loving him, the more you are like demons. You are no more sure of salvation than they are. To make this clearer, we survey two themes. The sins of Satan and the signs of salvation. The sins of Satan. Demons know more facts about God than any of us, and the most knowledgeable demon of them all is Satan himself. Satan is a superb scholar. He has a brilliant intellect and the best possible training. Before he rebelled against God, Satan was a splendid archangel with amazing powers, including a mighty mind. When Satan rebelled, he became evil, but he still had many of his powers. He hasn't become slow-minded or forgetful. He couldn't come up with so many clever ways if he weren't intelligent. Satan is smarter than any human genius. Satan knows about God's attributes and God's actions. About God's attributes. He also has better training in theology than any human on the face of the earth. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, Satan was educated in the best divinity school in the universe, the heaven of heavens. What seminary or university could provide you a more thorough training in the things of God than Satan has had? As an archangel, Satan spent ages in God's presence. He knows God's power, his wisdom, his majesty, his justice in ways that we do not. He knows that God is Trinity, an everlasting union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Satan has more detailed, accurate knowledge of God's characteristics about God's attributes than any of us about God's actions. Satan also has superb knowledge about many of God's actions. Along with the other angels, Satan was present when God made the world, the stars, and so he knows exactly when and how the Lord created the earth, the heavens, the planets, the animals, and people. Satan knows a great deal about God's actions in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. He saw Jesus born. He watched him grow into maturity. He kept track of Jesus every moment of Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus died, he witnessed his resurrection. Satan also knows the contents of the Bible. He even tempted Jesus, quoting from Scripture. He possibly knows every verse of the Bible. Satan, the scholar, knows more facts about God, more about creation, more about salvation, more about Jesus, more about the Bible, more about the heaven, and to his dismay, more about hell. 
than any of us here can possibly know. Satan and his demons may spread lies denying the existence of God, denying the created creator's activity, denying that the Bible is God's word, denying that Jesus is God, denying the Trinity, denying Jesus' blood is the basis of salvation, denying heaven and hell are real. But although the demons try to fool people about these matters, they themselves don't believe these lies for one moment. They know the basic sound of Christian teaching very well, and they believe these facts without a shade of doubt. Indeed, the beliefs of demons are so accurate and strong and lively that it makes them tremble. It takes a lot to make a demon tremble. If saving faith were merely a matter of having a mind full of facts, then Satan and his demons would be saved. Indeed, the faith of demons would be considered greater than the faith of any humans, since demons know so much. But in reality, the demons are not saved at all. They are the worst enemies of God, doomed to the worst punishment of hell, proof that correct belief in God's actions is not enough to save anyone. If you have information about Jesus, and you are persuaded that this information is correct and true, and you affirm it, it all it does is qualify you to be a demon. The demons know the truth. It is the demons who first recognize the identity of Jesus. They are convinced of the truth of who he is, but they hate that truth. They are convinced of the truth of who Jesus is. They hate it. Unless God the Holy Spirit moves you from knowledge and assent to trust, you do not have a saving faith. Sins of Satan. The second theme, the signs of salvation. Many people would rather not hear such things. Many preachers would rather not say such things. Many are too rationalistic to think about demons, too self-satisfied to worry about hell, too sentimental to fear that God would punish them, too sloppy to test their hearts carefully. It's easier to assume that all are headed for heaven, regardless of what we're like. But it is not true. Many are headed for hell. We can't just assume that we are okay with God. We must test ourselves. The Bible urges in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Real religion is not just a matter of having correct opinions. To be a genuine Christian is to have God's life in you. It is to say truthfully, Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. How can you know whether Christ Jesus is in you? You can't base your assurance on only correct beliefs. You can believe all sorts of true things about Jesus and have no more life of Christ in you than demons do. To have saving faith, the faith which connects you with Christ and assures you of eternal life, 
Your faith must be different than the faith of demons. But how must it be different? What is it about saving faith that distinguishes from the faith of those who have all sorts of accurate beliefs in God but are headed for hell? You shouldn't go any farther into this year. You shouldn't go another day or even another hour without finding the answer to that question and testing your hearts to determine whether you have that kind of faith that saves. We've seen what that whatever the difference might be, it's not just a matter of having a mental grasp of certain main truths of Christianity. What distinguishes saving faith from the faith of demons? An excellent summary of faith is expressed in the 1563 Reformation document, the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 21. True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed in his word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Ghost works in me by the gospel, not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. What are the sure signs of God's grace and the saving work of his spirit in your life? We can identify three signs. Godly attitudes, godly actions, and godly advances. True faith is grounded in an attitude toward God, which is different from the attitude of demons. This attitude shows itself in actions that are different from the actions of demons. And true faith advances or grows in adoration and reverence of God, the opposite of demons. Think about godly attitudes. The attitude of saving faith is to delight in God, to rejoice that God is who he is, to see beauty in God's holiness and purity, to glory in the wonderful things he has done in Jesus, to relish the sweetness and the truth revealed in the Bible, and above all, to have supreme satisfaction of all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. This isn't just a matter of feeling glad because you think you've been saved from hell. It's a matter of finding the Lord overwhelmingly attractive, of longing to be with him and enjoying him forever, of valuing and trusting him far more than any other person or thing in your life, including yourself. Saving faith has a sense of God's beauty, a spiritual taste for God's goodness. If you have this kind of appetite for the things of God and enjoyment of God's goodness in Christ, then your faith is a saving faith that really does differ from the faith of demons. Demons know a lot about God. They don't see anything beautiful or lovely or desirable in what they know. They find God repulsive and terrifying. Why? Because they prefer their own way to God's way, and they know that God insists on his way. How is it possible to have so much knowledge about God and his ways and yet be his enemies? 
Think of spies in an enemy intelligence agency. These agents know a great deal about the language, the culture, the customs of the nations they oppose, but in but all their knowledge doesn't change for a moment the fact that they are enemies. They know more about the nation than many of its own loyal citizens. But although their heads are full of knowledge and their heart is, their heart is hard and cold toward the enemy, they may fear that day when their side is crushed and a list of secret agents comes to light. They may tremble at the thought of being exposed and punished, but they remain enemy agents serving another power. Satan and his demons are an enemy intelligence agency that wants to undermine the rule of God. Deep down they know God will triumph and they will be ruined, but they remain opposed to God. So too, people who have learned a lot in their heads but have rebelled in their hearts are part of the enemy intelligence. They know plenty, but their hearts have no love for the kingdom that they know so much about, and they remain on the wrong side. But does the story have to end there? Suppose some of the people who started out as enemy agents, but somehow began to change, not just by learning more facts, but by experiencing a new attitude. They begin to see and sense things in a way they never have before. They begin to see their enemy's culture as excellent and noble and satisfying, and their own as empty and rotten. They come to admire the enemy ruler and conclude that his ways are best. As they gain a sense of his excellency, they also get a sense of their own evil. They're brokenhearted that they could ever oppose such a worthy ruler, and they're sorry for the damage they have done to others in his kingdom. They decide to confess their crimes and to throw themselves on the mercy of the ruler. Now, even if they confess, they still would have no right to be spared. But their attitude would be the opposite of an agent that kept on living as an enemy who trembled at the thought of getting caught and hoped to avoid punishment but had no appreciation for the rightful ruler and no desire to live under his laws. If it turned out that the ruler was merciful and provided a way to pardon the enemy agents who changed their mind, then former enemies could confess and become loyal, joyful citizens, while those who remained in rebellion would still be condemned. According to the Bible, Satan and his demons, are so hardened that they are beyond the possibility of such change. People who die without a living faith are also hardened beyond change. But to people who are still on earth, God continues to show his glory and mercy in Christ. and Many of his enemies end up becoming loyal citizens through a living faith. If this happens to you, it's nothing less than a rebirth in your soul. In the marvel of rebirth, a new sense of God's loveliness and worth arises in your soul, accompanied by a deep sorrow at opposing him and hurting others. 
You know God would be perfectly right to punish you as an enemy, and yet you throw yourselves on his mercy, asking him to cover your evil with the blood of Jesus and to count you not as enemies, but as citizens of his kingdom and even as members of his family. You have a burning desire to know Jesus better, to enjoy his nearness and to come become more like him. And because you relish his holiness so much, you hate your own sin and want to be free of it. You don't just want to escape the punishment for sin. You want to escape sin itself. You don't just want Jesus' forgiveness. You want Jesus. You know that if you have everything but Jesus, you have nothing. And that if you have nothing but Jesus, you have everything. This is the attitude of living faith, the attitude totally unlike the faith of demons. And the wonder of it all is that God actually does forgive and adopt and give himself to those who come to him with this kind of attitude. Without this attitude of prizing God's glory and looking to Jesus as your all-satisfying Savior, no amount of correct beliefs can save you. Correct beliefs are good and necessary for a living faith, as bones of a skeleton are good and necessary for a living body. But beliefs without an attitude of prizing God are like bones with no flesh or life. Godly attitudes, the first sign of salvation. Second, godly actions. Saving faith differs from the belief of demons in attitude and also in action. One test of whether a body is alive is whether it does anything. If it lies still with no detectable movement, breath, or pulse, it's at best in a coma and probably dead. In a similar way, one major test of whether your faith is alive or dead is whether it does anything. Your actions do not make you alive, but they do show whether or not you are alive. The Bible says we're saved by Jesus, not by our own actions. The right to be God's child is a gift paid for by Christ. It is not something you earn. God's life comes into your soul through the Holy Spirit, not through something you do. But the fact that everything we have comes through Jesus and his Holy Spirit doesn't mean that faith lies around like a corpse doing nothing. Once Jesus makes alive by faith, that God-given life shows up in ways in which you love God and also in ways in which you conduct your personal life and the ways in which you behave toward other people. James 2 26 says, Faith without deeds is dead. Maybe you've come across the idea that you can accept Jesus as Savior without honoring him as Lord. In this view, you can get forgiveness and eternal life simply by convincing yourself that Jesus died to save you without submitting to Jesus as your master. That's nonsense! If you don't have Jesus as Lord, you don't have him at all. You can't divide Jesus into pieces. 
and take the part labeled Savior, Savior and reject the part labeled Lord. True faith receives the whole Christ and yields the whole self. Jesus didn't just pay for your sins. He paid the price for you. If he saves you, he owns you. The gospel is not just facts to be believed or forgiveness to be received. The gospel is also a beauty to be savored, a majesty to be adored, an authority to be obeyed. If you truly love God, you love to hear God speak in his word. You love to talk to him in prayer. You love to worship him with other believers. You obey God's commands and seek to please him. You love other people for Christ's sake and try to treat them fairly and help those in need. You forgive them as you have been forgiven and you do to others as you have them do to you. If you have a living faith, you hate sin, you struggle against it, and you seek to be holy in all that you do. These actions of living faith are totally unlike the actions of demons. We've thought of godly attitudes and godly actions. Third, godly advances. Does this mean that if your attitudes and actions will be perfect, if you have God's life in you, if you are born of God, you know your sinfulness, but you keep growing in grace and in your ability to overcome sin. A child can be alive without being fully grown. You can be a living child of God and yet not be fully mature and sinless. Even if Christ lives in you, you have a sinful nature that must keep shriveling and a spiritual nature that must keep growing. A bumper sticker says, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. There's an element of truth in that, but it can be misleading. Christians are not perfect, but we are growing and changing. We are not just stuck in the same old sinful rut. We're not just forgiven, but we're also being transformed in our attitudes and our actions. If there is no growth and transformation, we have no reason to believe to think that we belong to Christ at all. God's forgiving grace is always accompanied by God's transforming grace. Every saved person is growing in grace, godly attitudes, actions, and advances. These are the signs of salvation. Do you have living faith? Do you see the evidence that Christ is in you? That you are growing in grace? Test your attitude. Is your attitude alive with a taste for God's excellence? Do you treasure all that God is for you in Christ Jesus? Do you relish the Lord and rest your confidence in him? What about your actions? Don't just focus on past experience, but on the present conduct. Does your present pattern of behavior show that you are alive in Christ? You're not yet perfect, of course. But do your actions show that you are growing in love and holiness? Check your vital signs. 
Check your attitude and actions. Check your advances. Is your faith really alive? Or do you merely believe the way demons believe? If you don't have God's life inside you, you need to know that. The sooner, the better. False confidence is fatal. If you can't detect clear evidence of God's life in you, don't assume you'll make it to heaven anyway. Don't fool yourself. Instead, recognize your predicament and plead for God's mercy and new life in Christ. Horatius Bonar, who lived in the 1800s, was a minister of the Free Church of Scotland, author and poet. His gifts for expressing theological truths in fluent verse form are evident in his best-known hymns. In addition, he was blessed with a deep theological understanding of doctrinal principles. He wrote, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I praise the God of peace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his. I call him mine, my God, my joy, my light. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he loveth me. I live because he lives. If you do find solid evidence that Christ is living in you, then rejoice and be certain that God is your Father. One old-time Christian said that he would rather see the real marks of a godlike nature upon his soul than to have a vision from heaven or an angel tell him his name is written in the book of life. You don't need a stunning experience to be sure of salvation. You can be assured of your faith by its fruits. Therefore, beware of believing like demons. My gracious God, as we bow before you, as we've thought upon this passage, as we've meditated upon the great acquisitions of Satan and the demons, the quick apprehension of who Christ was when he was on the earth. We are alerted to that we may have a lot of intellectual attainments. We are blessed with accurate documents and creeds that have so instructed our faith. And we can articulate ways in which are accurate and true according to the scriptures. My Father, I am so concerned that those who have an accurate faith may not have a saving faith. 
would your spirit now bring the conviction or bring the consolation that his work in the hearts of your people might be evident. Let not these dear ones assume that they are saved because they believe like demons believe, only with knowledge and assent, but with no commitment, no trust, no reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have great advantages over many others who have sloppy doctrine and self-centered and sentimental doctrine. We have solid doctrine before us. We have the ordinary, the regular preaching of the Word of God. Do not allow us to be hardened by that, but grant to us a living faith. Show us of our attitudes, of our actions, and of our advances, whether we belong to Christ or not. Grant that your spirit might work mightily. We plead for Jesus' sake. Amen.